Good morning. Um, like Judd said, I am Bradley Couples. Uh, I am a member here and as well as I serve in the youth group. Um, I did want to say a few things. When I first came here, uh, I took over serving in the high school youth ministry. Um, it was right about the time Rowan was going to be born and Jason stepped out. And I wasn't quite sure what I was getting into or truly how big of the shoes I was going to have to fill. But after working with the kids and seeing the kids, you you really prepared them throughout youth or throughout middle school and high school. So I thank you for that. I know the parents thank you for that. Um, and to you and Abby both, just serving every kid that walked through Eagle Valley High School's doors, just giving your life to them, as well as um, Young Life. So you are a blessing to this valley. You're a blessing to us, and we are sad to see you guys go. Um, so thank you guys for that. Well, I will pray, and we will get started. Father, Lord, we do thank you for your faithfulness. Lord, we most importantly thank you that through your Son we have the forgiveness of sins, righteousness, Lord, and everlasting life. Lord, as I speak today, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts are pleasing in your sight. Lord, and I pray and just hope you receive glory through your word and through us and through your Son. And it's in your name. Amen. In preparing for this, I thought a lot about what's going on in our, our world today. If we were to look around, we see truly a desperate need. It wouldn't take five minutes with looking on any social media website or news um, broadcast where we would see the grotesque acts of Planned Parenthood and selling aborted babies for money. Or if we go back about a month ago, we see our Supreme Court pass a law that opposes the law of God. We still hear of our religious liberties at stake each day as we continue to see the bakers in the news as well as photographers and other people who are facing persecution for their beliefs as well as being sued. We see racism running rampant in our streets. If we were to look out into the world, we would see extreme poverty. We see thousands of persecuted Christians. And it's not hard, and you don't have to look too hard to find a complete rebellion to God. So it does fill my heart with joy that God in his mercy has given us his word that we can get to know him, that we have these 66 books to get to know him, to find that peace we're looking for, the righteousness we need. And so as we begin um, our overview with the Synoptic Gospels today, um, we start where the New Testament starts with Matthew. To jump right into it, there is much debate um, over the date of which Matthew was written. Some believe it was written in A.D. 50. Others somewhere in between A.D. 110. But I think we're safe to say with 
Jesus' prediction in Matthew 24 of the destruction of the temple, we can say it's prior to A.D. 70. Um, Matthew's name is at the top of the book. He does not name himself anywhere in this gospel as the author. But because of this, there's also much debate, but I go with the weight of church history and early church fathers as Irenaeus and Origen, who both attest to his authorship, and I believe that those who were closest and knew him best named him as author, so therefore we have no compelling reason to reject their testimony. Matthew was a Jew by birth and a Roman by employment, which truly was a tortured um, combination, if you ask me. Um, but mostly he was a disciple and an apostle of our Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew gives us our first account in the New Testament, as I have stated. He gives us a deeply surfaced picture of Christ. We see Christ as teacher, healer, and king. We see the clearest accounts of the Lord's teaching and ministry. And we see our Lord's life, death, and resurrection. So as I was studying this, I thought of three questions that I kind of want to go through today that are important um, in doing an overview. What does the text say? Who is Christ and how do we respond? If we were to look at a simple overview or general outline of this book, we would see the presentation of the king in chapters 1 and 2, the preparation of a king in 3, 4 through 16, the preaching of a king through 4, 17 through 16, 21, the passion of a king in 16, 22, 28 through 15, and the pur- our purpose from the king in 28, 16 through 20. But just as it is with any outline, it does not give us the clearest picture. So I do want to walk through a little deeper today, um, just on the sections. The first four chapters of the gospel account for the genealogy of Christ, his infancy, his baptism, and preparation. And if we were to skip to the end, the last three chapters, we see the passion of our Christ, which is his suffering, his death, and resurrection. Just a huge chunk in the middle is what I want to spend a little time on. Um, Matthew breaks his gospel into five sections, each one uh, beginning with a discourse and followed by a narrative. Um, It is actually what separates Matthew's account from the other gospels because none of the other ones are structured the way Matthew structures his. And it's also why it's one of my favorites, because we get to see the longest teachings of Christ throughout. Walking through these sections, chapters 5 through 9 begin with the Sermon on the Mount and accounts for a number of Jesus' healings. We also see Matthew establishing Jesus' authority as both teacher and healer. And we see that Jesus is someone to hear, trust, and obey. Chapters 10 through 12 make up his second discourse. And narrative, in the beginning of chapter 10, we see the Lord preparing his disciples for ministry, um, giving them authority. He begins to send them out. But he also prepares them for the opposition, some of which we will see in the next two chapters, that they would experience in the next two chapters. The third section, chapter 13 through the middle of 16, comprises the formation of two camps, those who acknowledge Jesus as the Christ and those who are opposed. Jesus begins teaching parables in chapter 13 where we see this polarization happening when the kingdom comes. 
And then we begin to see this polarization pan out in the remaining chapters of the gospel. To me, I found it was a great section that should orient us outward for evangelism, even in the midst of opposition, like we find in our country and in our society today. Continuing on, the next section, the next section we see is considered the turning point in the gospel as it hinges off the last section. Ending with Peter's confession, we, read, we first read this. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. This was a shift in the gospel. This is a turning point of now Jesus is preparing to go towards Jerusalem and face his death. But from this point in chapters 16 and 18, we see a lot of great things. We see the Lord teaching on discipleship, church discipline, and forgiveness. The Lord is giving his disciples understanding through parables about the church. We see the Lord answer questions on how to deal with sin and how to forgive one another. This is truly a section of, of this book that the church needs, that we need to consider, and that we need to learn from. Then we enter the last and longest section of chapters 19 through 25. And then they, they primarily focus on the coming judgment. Here we see Jesus' long teachings of the promised judgment on Israel for rejecting the Messiah. Later on, we see him separate, talking about the final judgment of believers and unbelievers. But we also see here, just as a side note, Matthew 24, what I believe is the foundation for all the for the overall framework for all New Testament prophecy. We should begin where Christ begins with our eschatological interpretations. So, with adding the introduction, which we see the emphasis, the um, we see the genealogy, the emphasis, the baptism, and the preparation, and adding that with the Lord's death, resurrection, and then His charge to us. And throwing all the chunk in the middle, we do have the gospel as Matthew presents, presents it. And it's all laid out to bring us to Matthew's main concern, to present who Jesus is. This brings me to my first, or my next question, who is Jesus? To me, this is in fact the most important question anyone will encounter in their life. And I pray that everyone in here considers it very carefully. Christ is our blessed Savior. He is our Redeemer. He is prophet as he is the very word of God. And furthermore, his teachings are the foundations for all of life, as you see in Matthew 7. He is our priest. He daily intercedes for us. And importantly, he is our atonement from sin. He is our king and our God. Matthew presents Jesus' ministry as it is, deeply rooted in the history and life of Israel. There are three main Old Testament figures throughout the account that help us in a deeper understanding of Christ. We see Abraham, Moses, and David. But to avoid complexity today, I only want to focus on how Matthew shows us Jesus as the son of David and the Christ. 
In the very first word of this account, we read these words, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. A few verses later, we see the angel of the Lord address Jesus' earthly father as Joseph, the son of David. This expressing once again the importance that the Messiah was to come from the line of David. If we were to skip ahead a little more, there are multiple accounts throughout the gospel where we see, his na- where we see this name being used. We see in chapter 9, as we read, And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. Or when he healed the blind mute man in chapter 12, and the people were astonished, saying, Could this be the son of David? Or at the triumphal entry, when the crowd's greeting him with, Hosanna, the son of David. But what is the importance of this title? I believe we can gain a deeper understanding when we read the exchange between Jesus and the Pharisees in Matthew 22. As we read this, it says, Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, for a, asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at the right hand until I put your enemies under my feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. See, Jesus is quoting here from Psalm 110. He knew just as David knew. um, He was to be greater than David. That's what he's saying here. That David knew the significance of the psalm and what he was doing in the psalm. He would be the Messiah. This is the one Judd read about earlier in Jeremiah who would reign as king, who would execute justice and righteousness, who would save and secure his people and be their righteousness. This is something Matthew makes very clear throughout his gospel. Starting with his genealogy to the Magi's in chapter 2, through John the Baptist, through many miracles and up to the clearest confirmation seen in Peter's confession, where we read this. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do, you say that I, who do you say that the Son of Man is? And they said to him, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah. Well, one of the prophets, he said to him, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. After Peter stated this, the Lord confirmed his anointing, anointing, warning them not to tell anyone. You see, Jesus is the Lord's anointed, the Messiah that Israel was waiting for, and they rejected him. They saw a king who was going to deliver them from the hands of Rome. They didn't want a king who was going to conquer the grave. They didn't want a king who was going to overthrow sin and death. They wanted immediate deliverance from Rome. The sad truth is we too today reject him. Maybe not as blatant but I believe we can all see ourselves at the cross. Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. 
He is redeemer of his people. He died to take on our sins. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He is prophet, priest, and king. Let us prophet to end all prophets, a priest to end all priests, and a king to one day bring down all kings. So I do ask you once again, who do you say he is? And how do you respond? In my reflection over the last few weeks, as I continually read this gospel and, and taking in just so much, I, I wondered how can I, first off, how, how do I need to take this? What do I need to learn from this? How do I need to grow? And what can I apply? And as I read through it, three main questions that needed my prompt response dealt with the issues of repentance, discipleship, and faithfulness. And I truly saw that they needed my immediate response. So first, I want to I lead with repentance. And, and I know we all don't have the deepest understanding of what repentance is. But to simply define it, it is to turn from our sinful selves, this world and Satan, and turn to God and put our faith and trust in Christ. In the very first part of this book, we see John the Baptist preaching this, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And to the Pharisees and scribes, he said, Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And we read these words as Jesus began his mystery. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So I do ask if, you know, if there's no one, if there's anyone in here that does not know the Lord, consider these words. Consider what it is to repent, to turn your life around, to give it to God. And for my brothers and sisters in here, as these words can be hard and we know they're a response to the Pharisees, we too are to bear fruit keeping with repentance. It's a part of our daily lives. We should daily go before the Lord confessing and seeking cleansing and just turning to God. We should not let anything hinder us from this great gift of God. I also want you guys to consider these words as they've been very help me, helpful for me um, book called Repentance by Jack Miller. But in thinking about what hinders us from repentance or if our sin's too deep or no matter what it is, I just remember this first part of the book. It deeply helped me, and I just want to share that with you. It says, what we all desperately need is to see that the love of the holy God is manifested covenantly at the cross. It is In the sacrifice of the Lamb of God, the Father promises to receive contrite sinners on a daily, no hourly basis. The cross says, no matter what your sins are, unlimited mercy is available to those who turn to God through Jesus' merits. Thus at Calvary, we behold the infinite nearness and compassion of an infinitely majestic God. The Father, in the gift of his Son, has put himself under eternal obligation to returning children. Having satisfied the demands of his own holy law, the father must open his mighty arms and embrace every returning child, and he must do it every day. He promised to do it, and God cannot lie, referring to Hebrews six, thirteen through 20. So I, too, say the same things. Don't let anything hold you back. 
Turn to God. Leave your sin. Because there's truly not a such thing as late repentance. It's, it's something that needs to be done today. There's truly love to be found and a gospel to be grasped. Second thing I saw that was extremely important to me was discipleship. And I want to focus mainly on the fact that we are to become committed disciples of Christ. That we are to pick up our crosses and follow him daily. We are to commit ourselves to the mission of God by seeking God's kingdom and seeking the Father's will. And we also do do that by making disciples of Christ. The passage we are all too familiar with gives us this command as we read, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of this age. Guys, as we seek to become disciples ourselves, to commit our lives to Christ and following him, we do have that charge in Matthew 28. We are to make disciples. We are to go out. Um, as I reflect on the Copleys and just their heart to go to Papua New Guinea and just give the word of God to develop a language and a written language to or develop their language in, in writing so that they could have God's word. So what a beautiful thing to answer that calling. But for us who are here, this is going to be done in many places, our jobs, our friendships, and most importantly in our homes and churches. This is something that should be done without distinction. You should not look to someone as if they are not worthy or their sin is too deep or we're better than them. As I think about our jobs, personally me, I walk into my place of employment every day and I see my fellow coworkers celebrating in their sins, rejoicing in their wrongdoing. It's not so much the sins that they do, because I have sins of my own that need to be dealt with, but I deeply care for their souls. I know the ultimate reality is that they're facing hell. Each day that I walk in there, I see them perish day by day. I do my best to be a light. I guess my calling to you is in your workplace, be a light. I would say definitely do it in your words and deeds, but also do it with your life. Remain above reproach and just shine the king. In our friendships, it is also important, and I have younger people in mind here. Um, you guys go to school and you see people who who are perishing day by day too. Some of your friends don't know the gospel. They don't have parents to lead them. As I come from a background where I didn't have that either, they're seeking. They're looking to you. A good plug for Young Life right now. It's something good you guys should get plugged into because those kids come there that wouldn't walk through these doors but they're looking. They're looking to be free. They're looking to be delivered. They're looking for the joy and the peace and the happiness that they see in you. 
And for us who are older, it's the same thing in our friendships. We need to continue to be that light to them, to show them. In our homes, this is something we all know as I am just a husband and not a father yet, but I know my job is to lead my wife and one day my family in the ways of the Lord. So you who are here who has a family, and or even if you're a brother or sister, continue to disciple those who are underneath you, who are not as far along as you may be. In our churches, I, I reflect on when we went through Titus and Judd was talking about it's important for older men to disciple younger men and the same older women disciple younger women. There's a need for that in the church. We need to bridge that generational gap. So my charge to especially the younger ones here, seek that today. Such a blessing. I have learned so much from so many people. I can think of Judd and Mike Pittman and Ben Daly and Jim Kinzer, who I don't think is here this week. Keith. Just those little bits of nuggets that I gained from those men. It doesn't have to be a 30-minute sit-down. It could just be a short conversation. So younger people, listen. You will be blessed. One of the last things I saw that the gospel requires is our faithfulness. We are called to be ready. Jesus spends a lot of time at the end of his gospel speaking of the wicked and faithful servant. It's truly a section that can, it's not that easy to, to hear or handle. We are called to be ready at his turn. At his hat, we are called to be ready at his return. That means loving, trusting, and waiting for Christ. The faithful servant is, is faithful because he is expecting his Lord's return. But let us not neglect that it does not have to do with his faithful service. That is continuing to do the work the Lord has left us here to do. So I ask you today, are you ready and are you watching? Because this is no light concern. It is of extreme seriousness. Because to be ready at the Lord's return is salvation, and to not be ready is to perish. Guys, this great book should humble us as we see the life death, and resurrection of our Savior. It should help us in our understanding of the teachings of our King and help prepare us for his promised return. I do ask you today as we continue to prepare, as, as Ben prepares and as Judd prepares, read along. It took me about two hours to read the Gospel of Matthew and I did it. Mark would probably take an hour, and Luke, since he's long-winded, probably three. But you learn so much from that overview. You learn so much from taking from chapter one 
with Matthew all the way to chapter 28 without putting it down. You get to see a clear picture of so many things. You get to be challenged by the Lord in your own life. Brothers and sisters, when the gospel is embraced, it controls. It controls our entire lives, affecting hearts, values, and commitments. So let it lead us in adoration, confession, and assurance, as well as thanksgiving. And let us praise God once again that in his grace and in his mercy that he has delivered to us his word that we have the privilege of getting to know him, that truly here lies the keys to life.